I'm Priscilla Lawrence, the Executive Director of the Historic Orleans Collection, and with me is Jack Pruitt, who is our de Director of Development and External Affairs, and the person that um, coordinates all of this program. On behalf of the Collection and our Board of Directors, we welcome you to the 2011 New Orleans Antiques Forum. I'd like to introduce our Board of Directors, um, Fred Smith, who is President. Um, I think you should stay. <laughs> Mary Lou Christovich, Chairman. Um, John Walker is here, um, who is a past President. Alexander Stafford is here. And the other board members are Hilton Bell, John Hallenborn, and Drew Jardine. Yesterday, we had a wonderful trip to the New Roads area of Louisiana. And I want to thank Dr. and Mrs. Jack Holden and their family, and Richard Gibbs and Randy Harrelson, for not only opening their homes for us, but for doing so much to make us feel welcome and, and make sure we enjoyed the trip and the tour. So from all of you who were on the tour, let's have a round of applause. Heritage from abroad, 
one which has become so integral to the ident identity of this region that, as our event suggests, we need to step back in order to appreciate these elemental influences. I wholeheartedly support the New Orleans Antiques Forum's endeavor to bring this French connection to the fore this year, especially by exploring the realm of the decorative arts. Today, I would like to recall recent collaborations between the French consulate and the historic New Orleans collection. For example, 400 years of French presence in Louisiana, treasures from the Bibliothèque Nationale de France in 2007, and two years ago, the colloquium Alsace Jewish Experience about immigration of French Jewish citizens from Alsace region to Louisiana during the 19th century. I am all the more delighted and gratified to be honorary chair of this year's New Orleans Antiques Forum organized by such a faithful partner, and I am confident of the benefits our endeavor will bring to this city. I am equally confident that, that this event will both deepen our understanding of the unique relationship between France and the Gulf South region, and provide a medium to continue to foster these ties. François Delard, Ambassador of France to Washington. End of quotation of the, the message. For myself, I thank very much. Uh, thank you very much for your attention, and I wish also all the all the best uh, and a very successful New Orleans Antiques Forum 2011. All of you and to the organizers uh, organizer of this uh, event. I already had uh, since I, I arrived in uh, July for uh, about ten days, and now I'm back here in New Orleans. I'm already had the uh, pleasure uh, to and uh, uh, honor to uh, uh, see uh, the wonderful collection, uh, the collections of the HNOC and to have also the uh, wonderful experience to organize my first uh, Bastille Day uh, in this very uh, room <laughs> and in this very wonderful place. So I thank you all for your attention and again uh, all uh, the best for the success, successful, successful four days event on this decorative arts uh, aspect of the relationship with France uh, on behalf of the ambassador François Delat uh, and, and myself. Thank you.
where to go what, or what to do. Your packets will provide a lot of information and our, our staff will certainly be willing to help you as well. We are happy this year to welcome four scholarship recipients. We are thrilled that there are young people that are interested in, in the decorative arts and, and so we were able to, to offer scholarships and I'd like to recognize um, these special guests. And if you would um, stand when I call your name. Um, Kelly Whitson, an undergraduate student in museum studies at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. Kristen Condotta, a Ph.D. candidate in history at Tulane University. Um, Alice Dickinson Carboni and Adam Irby, two interns from the Winterthur Program in American Material Culture in Delaware. Um, Alice and Adam have been working with the Classical Institute of the South this summer to create inventories within historical houses in St. Francisville, or that area. Today, we are able to provide these students with complimentary admission to the forum, but with your help, we could increase this award to include stipends for travel and hotel accommodations. So I invite your participation with this important endeavor, and if you um, would like to make a contribution, <laughs> Jack would be happy to help. Um, it's now my honor to recognize our sponsors, and without these people, we could not do this at all, and especially not so well. Um, our sponsors are the Hotel Monteleon, the New Orleans Convention and Visitors Bureau, the Koipu Foundation, Garrity Print Solutions, a Harvey company, the World Trade Center of New Orleans, Dorian Bennett, Sotheby's International Realty, Royal Antiques, the French Antique Shop, the Consulate General of France in New Orleans, New Orleans Silversmiths, Neal Auction Company, Antoine's Restaurant, the Asby Fund, the Schoen Charitable Foundation, and Community Coffee. So it's, it's great support and we appreciate all you have done. So everyone. And now I'm going to turn things over to Jack Pruitt, who will keep things moving. Thank you. Thank you, Priscilla, and happy Friday. What a great day. We sincerely thank each of you for being a part of this year's forum. We are honored that you're here. We would also like to thank uh, Dr. Eugene Sizik for his talk on yes at yesterday's tour, Tremendous. Also, Brian Costello and Mary Cooper, we sincerely thank you for your, your part in yesterday's activities. Um, I would like now to recognize our Honorary Advisory Committee. These are individuals very important to the Historic New Orleans Collection and to the Forum. First, Michael Allen, Executive Director of the American Society of Interior Designers. Daryl Berger, Chairman of the of the New Orleans Tourism and Marketing Corporation, Jean-Claude Brunet, Consul General of France in New Orleans, Jeanette Feltus of Linden Plantation Natchez Antiques Forum, Nicole Granet Friedlander of the French Antique Shop, Thomas Jane of Thomas Jane Studio, Dominique Noel, Chief Executive Officer of the World Trade Center of New Orleans, Robert Leaf, Chief Curator and Vice President of Collections and Research at MESDA, the Museum of Early Southern Decorative Arts, Judge Mary Ann Lemon, U.S. District Court, Eastern District of Louisiana, Andre Kyle Moss of Kyle's Antiques and Moss Antiques, Elizabeth Picota, Editor of the Magazine Antiques, 
William McCrary, Chairman of the Board of the New Orleans Convention and Visitors Bureau, Nanette Shapiro of Royal Antiques, Elizabeth Stridlin, Chairman of the French Heritage Society, and Paula caldwell Ceylon, Consul General of Canada. If we could give a hand of housekeeping items I would like to mention. I'm checking to see if I turned off the telephone. Uh, your name tag is your entry to the forum, and we ask that you present it at all forum programs. So hold on to that name tag. If you are scheduled to attend the Sunday brunch at Antoine's, you will find your ticket in the back of your name tag. And uh, should you have any questions while you're here, the collection staff at the registration desk are available to assist you, and please remember to silence all electronic devices. Also, I'd like to mention tonight's reception. Following tonight's final session is a special reception where you will have a chance to mingle with speakers, staff, and fellow attendees in our courtyard at 533 Royal Street. Be sure to visit the exhibition featuring a stunning display of Spanish colonial paintings while you're there. Um, we look forward to tonight. Now it is my privilege to introduce our moderator, Tom Savage. As Director of Museum Affairs at Winterthur Museum and Country Estate, Mr. Savage oversees the collections, public programs, and marketing departments. He was Senior Vice President, Director of Sotheby's Institute of Art, where he directed the Sotheby's American Arts Course from 1998 to 2005, and from 81 to 98, he served as Curator and Director of Museums for the historic Charleston Foundation. A native of the Eastern Shore of Virginia, Mr. Savage received a Bachelor's Degree in Art History from the College of William and Mary, and a Master's in History and Museum Studies from the Cooperstown Graduate Program of the State University of New York. The author of the Charleston Interior and numerous articles and essays, including the essay on the Carolina Low Country to Colonial Williamsburg recent volume, Southern Furniture, 1680 to 1830, the Colonial Williamsburg Collection. Mr. Savage serves on the Board of Directors of the Royal Oak Foundation, the Decorative Arts Trust, the Sir John Soames Museum Foundation, and the American Friends Committee for Horace Walpole's Strawberry Hill. In addition, he served as president appointee, as a presidential appointee to the Committee for the Preservation of the Hot White House from 1993. 2002. We are honored that this is his fourth year to serve as moderator of this event. It is truly my pleasure to present to you now, for the next three days, the biggest francophile from the state of Virginia since Thomas Jefferson, <laughs> Mr. Tom Savage. Language lab. 
they were gathering to listen to my tapes. <laughs> so I'm very, very proud to be French at heart, and I hope you will forgive anything I may do to the language unwittingly. That said, I do love France, and particularly musically. My mother was an organ major at Westminster Choir College, and after my father died, we went off on an expedition to Spain and to France to hear all the great Baroque and later organs in France and in Paris. So I do know my clarin bow from my Duraflay. And having researched that trip rather carefully in Toulouse, I discovered where the very best castellet was available. I ordered the biggest and best Bordeaux I could afford, and I was accused of elder abuse that night. <laughs> Darling, we can't eat like this every night. Mom's not going to make it. So not only am I French of heart, but I came very close to being French of heart attack. <laughs> well, obviously, I come from a place that has French roots to greet you, Wichita, the home of collector Henry Francis Dupont. And prior to my necessarily brief remarks this morning, I just thought I would mention that he indeed collected French objects, had French ancestral objects at Winterthur. They were often relocated as what he called the process of patient correction began. So this room, the Nemours room, named for one of the areas of France from which the Dupont family descended, was gradually given over to New York furniture. Similarly, what is now the Empire Parlor was the white drawing room filled with French furniture, which later made its way to their downsized cottage of 50 rooms once they moved out of Winnetor, a house of 175 rooms. But here you see it mercifully still in the collection of the window curtains to a design by Philippe de La Salle, which apparently made the curator at the Musée des Arts Écritiques weep. They have a two-yard repeat of the gardener. We have over 70 yards in our window curtains. So there are French treasures at Winnetor. But today, I want to mention those early French in the Carolina Low Country. And I hasten to add, my research is built on that of Robert Leaf, who is in this audience, of Ron Hurst at Colonial Wigsburg. And in fact, my remarks are almost entirely proved from Luke Beckerdyke, who published a very substantive article in American Furniture, 1997. In fact, so borrowed from Luke, with his blessing, I hasten to add, if there are any copyright lawyers in the audience, would you please leave the audience now? <laughs> but I do um, recommend highly Luke's article, Religion, Artisanry, and Cultural Identity, the Huguenot Experience in South Carolina, 1680-1725. We'll hear a great deal about cartography, so I will get right to the decorative arts. And obviously, Jacques Lemoyne's watercolor on vellum presents imagery that must have held special meaning for Lemoyne and other Huguenots who saw America as a place of opportunity and sanctuary. In his article, Luke shows a selection of, actually, he shows virtually all of those objects with documentable uh, or attributable Huguenot. Um, design characteristics. This massive great chair with recovery history in South Carolina is probably the work of a first-generation Huguenot joiner. And unlike turned armchairs from the northern middle colonies, which have arms tenoned into the front post, this great chair has arms that extend well beyond the front post. And another feature encountered in period illustrations of French interiors is the spindle and rail construction and the small spindles pinned to the upper rails, as you see here. No early South Carolina bedsteads survived, and couches or day beds were sometimes used in place of bedsteads or hammocks. And this extraordinary survival in the collection of the Museum of Early Southern Decorative Arts in Winston-Salem suggests uh, period inventory references to couch bedsteads and couch uh, bed pillows and bolsters. A French or possibly even Germanic maker for the couch is suggested by the serpentine styles intended to represent twisted 
columns. And as Luke suggests, although few Germanic immigrants came to the Low Country before 1730, Teutonic styles may well have arrived earlier with the Huguenots who had sojourned in one of the Protestant states or in countries influenced by them. It's missing a bit of its press trail, and here you see um, the conjectured completion. And quite um, fascinatingly, in 1725, Margaret Kennett wrote, we have a very troublesome insect, which are called the Moscato, so that all the hot months we are forced to use pavilions made of catgut galls. Twenty yards makes a pavilion. And in the 17th century, pavillon was the French term for a cone, dome-shaped uh, feature suspended from the ceiling and from which textiles were hung to the ground. And Aubrey Mickey, formerly of Vesta, suggests that the term pavilion was probably introduced into Carolina by the Huguenots. This extraordinary piece first surfaced in the question and answer section of the magazine Antiques in 1926, with the owner asking if perhaps it could be associated with early Huguenot settlers of coastal South Carolina. And five years later, it was published in Paul Burroughs' Southern Antiques as attributed to South Carolina, and very often his attributions were based on family or recovery histories. This is in the Colonial Williamsburg collection of Walnut, probably coastal South Carolina, and the turned and joined armchair may be a rural South Carolina interpretation of a great chair like the one we just saw. And this open back frame provides little support for the sitter, suggesting that there was a squab or carrot on the back and seat. And English furniture historian Peter Thornton noted that French upholsters fitted both seats and backs with squabs tied on ribbons, a practice not encountered in England uh, much before the early 19th century. And here you see a similar complement of cushions apparently accompanying a contemporary New York City armchair in maple stained red. And it's noteworthy that next to South Carolina, colonial New York had the largest Huguenot population. Another form that low country appraisers would um, typically use English terms for French forms, so they probably would refer to this merely as a stool, but it's a form known in French as an escabeau. Uh, simple stools used in domestic and church settings where they may observe as coffin or beer stools. And this one was found in the Miles Bruton House in Charleston, a house continually occupied by the family of Miles Bruton, whose descendants all had the good sense to marry into other great Charleston families. So it's quite possible that this could have come from the Manager family who'd been resident in the house for most of the last century. And the top features a presumably original shaped cutout and elongated turned legs, um, typical uh, of those found in South Carolina, and a contemporary French-Canadian example from late 17th century Quebec, the historic Deerfield's collection shows the form in a French context. Similar to the, quote, old round Dutch black table, end quote, listed in the 1726-27 Charleston inventory of Alice Hall, this red cedar and cypress gateway table in the collection of the Charleston Museum carries a 19th century plaque inscribed Gabriel Manigo, 1739. The only cultural designation encountered in early Charleston inventories is, in fact, the term Dutch, a term that has both specific and general meanings. And this could have belonged to the immigrant Gabriel Manigo or his brother Pierre, whose son was also named Gabriel, both immigrant brothers or joiners. Quite an extraordinary piece, this structure-based table belonged to Thomas Broughton of Mulberry Plantation, and first cataloged as walnut subsequent wood analysis revealed it to be of mahogany. It was acquired by Mesda in 2000 and created before 1720, and is the earliest known example of southern-made mahogany furniture, indicative of the extremely high-quality lumber exported from the Caribbean at the turn of the 18th century. The Brock family table represents a very intriguing mystery. In the 18th century, the structure table form was used most frequently for kitchen 
tavern and work-related tables, and generally were made from pine or less expensive hardwoods, not an expensive wood imported like mahogany. So this may well be a rare survival of the original altar furniture from St. John's Parish in Berkeley, founded in 1706. And the Broughtons were among that parish's most prominent families, and may have been saved from fire and warfare by residing at the Broughton Family's plantation, where furniture scholars discovered it in the early 20th century. And here is the colonel himself, Thomas Broughton, painted by Henrietta Johnston, crayon on paper. His seat, depicted in this late 18th century watercolor by Charleston artist Thomas Coram, and in the foreground are slave houses with high steep roofs, small windows, and arched doors. These appear to be somewhat later than Broughton's house, Mulberry, which probably dates 1711 to 1714. Architectural historian Thomas Waterman argued that Mulberry's design derived from 16th century French chateau and vernacular houses in French settled areas of Virginia and the West Indies, but other scholars have suggested that late 17th century Netherlandish and French tower houses may have provided inspiration for Mulberry's distinct pavilions. What's quite fascinating is the interior greatly changed in the 19th century, but in an upstairs room, early woodwork remains, showing and documenting the involvement of European trade joiners. Uh, this door has a central panel with molded lozenge, and here you see the detail of that. And then I believe we saw this piece last year, a feature that frequently appears on late 17th and early 18th century French furniture and architectural woodwork, this buffet bar of circa 1700, again, in red pine, painted red, made in Quebec, and again in the collection of historic Deerfield. So these features should come as no surprise given Berkeley County, South Carolina's large Huguenot population and Broughton's interaction with that community. He was, for example, acquainted with refugee artisans, including Pierre Le Chevalier, and Broughton's own son, Nathaniel, married Henriette Charlotte de Chastanier, whose father, Alexander, was from the Rochelle nobility. And here's her charming portrait by uh, Henrietta Johnston. Just three more slides. The updating of Mulberry's rooms in about 1800 leaves us to conjecture what those other great interiors would look like. Uh, Limerick Plantation, which you just saw, sadly burned in 1945, but the principal rooms of Limerick had fireplace walls with raised panel and collection moldings similar to those of Mulberry. Its stair balusters incorporated elongated OG baluster over a compressed smaller one, also found on this turn and crafted table, also with a history from Limerick and now the Charleston Museum. Apprenticeships were a means by which Huguenots interacted with each other and with the English-speaking community. This late 17th century, um, during the late 17th century, three of the four silversmiths documented in Charleston were French. The fourth was Miles Bruton, who arrived in Charleston with his parents in 1684 and evidently trained with one of the Frenchmen. The Standing Cup of 1711 by Miles Bruton from Biggin Church in St. John's Parish is similar to standing cups made by Huguenot silversmiths for French churches in England. Now, curiously, all this silver was buried during the Civil War. It was hidden in a nearby rice mill where it was not rediscovered until 1946. And among the pieces recovered was this 17th century cup in silver gill made in Paris, which you're going to see later in Janine Scarry's presentation. And like Bruton Sacramento, Play, the presence of French silver in an Anglican church suggests that a process of Anglo-French creolization was occurring in the religious and material life of the Low Country. As Luke Beckerdyke concludes in his 1997 article, centuries of persecution had taught the Huguenots how to accommodate other cultures while maintaining their own identity through language, religion, marriage, and material life. Expressions of cultural identity could be as subtle as the car fleur-de-lis and French-style intaglio shell on the Charleston dressing table of circa 1725 to 35 at Mesa, or as obvious as the Huguenot organizations and institutions that have survived from the 18th century to the present. Although historians have argued that the Huguenots in Carolina were rapidly assimilated by the English-speaking population, evidence suggests that they were active participants in the uh, development of a multicultural regional identity. Thank you.
to John Lawrence, well known to this audience and certainly just one of the nicest guys in the decorative arts. In his 35-year career at Historic New Orleans Collection, John H. Lawrence has held the positions of curator photographs and senior curator and currently serves as the institution's director of museum programs. In this role, the New Orleans native is responsible for planning and implementing museum and exhibitions, lectures, seminars, and related activities. He is also the head of curatorial collections. He has written and lectured widely about aspects of contemporary and historic photography and the administration and conservation of pictorial collections. He has served as principal or guest curator for dozens of exhibitions on photographic, artistic, and general historical topics. Lawrence chairs the Williams Prize Committee of the Louisiana Historical Association and has been a contributing editor to the New Orleans Art Review since 1983. He holds degrees in literature and art history from Vassar College and a certificate in museum management from the Getty Leadership Institute, formerly the Museum Management Institute. In considering French influence in the coastal south, the place names that may immediately spring to mind are Biloxi, Mobile, and New Orleans, and the states that now contain these places, Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana. But what about Florida and Texas, or even, as we just saw, South Carolina? Though French presence may not have had the same historical and tenacious grip in those places as it does in the others, French influence in varying degrees and degrees of persistence has existed. For the next few minutes, as armchair travelers, I'd like to take you to some of those places, describe some events, perhaps introduce you to a person or two, and focus on the Frenchness of the coastal south. Malheureusement, this emphasis will only occasionally touch on the often fascinating story of French exploration of the North American interior. Like a modern-day Hansel, or perhaps Jean, I hope to drop enough breadcrumbs to construct a simple trail to follow the French as they explore and discover the coastal south, and in the course of those activities, contribute to and define some of its culture. The broadness of this topic and the limitation of time will make this more episodic than fluidly narrative. I will admit up front a bias toward French Louisiana, arguably where the Gallic presence lingered longest and had the most effect on France's coastal southern presence and policies. In 2003, the historic New Orleans collection published Charting Louisiana, 500 Years of Maps. The cover illustration of that volume was a rather modest map by Nicolas de Ferre, published in 1701, barely covering a square foot. But its character and its visual components underscore the theme of my particular talk and, to a degree, this entire conference. These 154 square inches of printed and colored paper speak to the varied French interests in the coastal south. The voices of these interests are inflected with knowledge of geography and natural history, with aspirations both economic and military, along with those of personal aggrandizement, and as the cartouche showing the death of René Robert, Cavalier Sieur de la Salle, at the hands of his own men illustrates with tragedy. Such is the summary of this history, born of great promise and ending in disillusionment, but not disappearance. For the purposes of our program, if we effectively define the coastal south as the portions of those states whose shores border the Gulf of Mexico, then we may initially consider a short-lived establishment by La Salle, often called Fort Saint Louis, as the first settlement in our geographical focus, though more than a hundred years prior to that, the French established a fort on the Atlantic coast within threatening distance of Spanish claims in Florida. Thus, the beginnings of French interest in what we now know as the American South derive from the efforts of Jean Libault, who with his band of Huguenots reached the east coast of Florida, territory claimed by the Spanish, in 1562, placing a stone column on a spot at the mouth of the St. John's River near present Jacksonville. In Ribault's eyes, this affected a French claim to Florida, and I'll show you this engraving that was the basis for the watercolor that Tom Savage showed you. Moving up the coast, Ribault established settlement at Paris Island in Port Royal Sound in present South Carolina, centered around a fortification he named Charles Score, honoring his king, Charles IX. 
We both returned to Europe, but his arrest on religious grounds prevented his timely return to America, and the Paris Island settlement was abandoned after about a year. In 1564, a second French expedition led by René Goulin de la de Laudonnière, who had initially accompanied Ribault, returned to Florida and built Fort Caroline on the St. John's River. Just over a year later, in 1565, Ribault, now free, joined the new settlement, supported with the force of ships and soldiers. The Gallic presence in Florida and neighboring areas produced an expected reaction from Spain, which built a fort at St. Augustine in 1565 to counter the budding French interest in North America's southeast coast. The personification of Spanish pushback was Pedro Menendez de Aviles, governor of Florida, whose own ships and soldiers engaged the French and ultimately destroyed the settlement at Fort Caroline, killing or capturing nearly all of its residents. This effectively ended French efforts to explore and settle what is now the American Southeast. And I'll show you this engraving of that battle. The presumed visual character of this colony of Fort Caroline resides in a series of prints issued by Theodore de Bray in 1591, believed to be based on observations by Jacques Lemoyne de Mourgue, who lived from about 1533 to 1588. Lemoyne had accompanied the La Donniere expedition, and it is believed that he served as de facto visual chronicler of events in the region, both related to the French activities of the fort and to aspects of native populations, cartographic pursuits, and the natural history of the area. And again, just a few examples showing these prints in their context with accompanying text in Latin, as well as the details. And a particularly dramatic one of hunting alligators. <laughs> Though Lemoyne had escaped the Spanish hecatomb at Fort Caroline, virtually all of his drawings in the colony were believed lost. The prints were reproduced by Dubai and published under the title of a brief narrative of the French in American Florida were reportedly based on Lemoyne's memory of the events and his lost drawings, rather than specific surviving artifacts. Even though removed from the original by a few degrees, they remain among the earliest visual statements of the New World by a Frenchman, though recent scholarship is questioning Lemoyne's authorship of some of the scenes and what events he may have personally observed. More than a century would pass before the French again seriously considered exploring and settling the coastal south. Toward the end of the 17th century, wanderlust, curiosity, adventure, the prospect of enrichment, or a combination of these and other elements drove the French west and south of their settlements of Quebec and Montreal, established on the St. Lawrence River in the early 17th century. Following the canoe wakes of Jacques Marquette and Louis Joliet, but pushing past the limits of the pair's earlier exploration was René Robert Cavalier sur de la Salle. And I show you this wonderfully simple map of uh, aspirational geography, as I like to call it, showing the, uh, the French settlements up at the upper right corner on the St. Lawrence River, connecting conveniently to the Great Lakes with a, perhaps a little bit of a suggestion of some difficulty in entering the Mississippi and then following that river straight to the Gulf of Mexico. LaSalle's descent of the river through the Great Lakes and its associated waterways culminated in reaching the Gulf of Mexico on April 9, 1682, where he claimed the valley and the vast trackless lands that drained for his monarch Louis XIV, declaring it Louisiana in a voice as 19th century Francis Parkman described, inaudible at half a mile. When published in 1683, the first printed map to name Louisiana didn't reflect LaSalle's progress, showing the Mississippi's course ending in the middle of North America. You can see the river ending right at that point. LaSalle's success in descending the Mississippi prompted funding for further exploration of newly claimed lands, and in July 1684, a small fleet set sail from France for the Gulf of Mexico, ostensibly to ascend the Mississippi River from its mouth. Whether by design, error, or simple bad luck, LaSalle's force missed its mark and made landfall on the Texas coast, not far from present Victoria, between Houston and Corpus Christi. And a detailed plan of that harbor. A series of bad decisions, misfortunes, and harsh conditions too numerous to recount in a short presentation followed the would-be settlers, 
Using what could be salvaged from foundered ships, a primitive encampment was made. A portion of the party, led by LaSalle, set off, hoping to make his way back to Frenchmen who could assist both parts of the group. As the Ferris cartouche underscored, this did not meet with success. LaSalle died at the hands of one of his own men, Pierre Hugel, on March 19, 1687. Meanwhile, the Spanish, having gotten wind of the French incursion on their claims in Texas and Mexico, set out to find the settlement and eliminate something that members of the Parent Colonization had already done for them. LaSalle's dream had ended in the wilderness, and the French had suffered another setback in trying to settle territory controlled by Spain. Francis claimed that the enormous swath of North America resident in LaSalle's declaration would not be viewed legitimate in the eyes of other European nations until the 1697 Treaty of Ryswick ended the War of the League of Augsburg, or King William's War, and ended the matter. This printed portion of the treaty and this medallion are both objects in the historic Rome's collection. This treaty and the ending of the diplomatic imbroglio between Spain and France over the succession of the Spanish throne in 1713 cleared the way for the French development of the colony of Louisiana, with at least one proposal emanating from Pierre Lemoyne, Sir de Iberville, a hero of the recently concluded war. Louisiana, of course, was not the medium-sized state it is today, but an area covering parts of three current time zones and some 30 degrees of latitude. French cartographer Guillaume de Lille, in a map of 1718, made the most of the South's claim, though Daniel Cox, representing British interests, launched his own cartographic counter-assault on this claim. His Carolina occupied nearly as much real estate as did La Louisiana. Though France ultimately settled New Orleans as the capital of Louisiana and also split it administratively from New France or Canada in 1717, other settlements on the Gulf Coast preceded permanent establishment of New Orleans, and I just show you a later map of, of the general area under discussion. Mobile and its nearby Barrier Island, Dauphin Island, were settled in the early 18th century, and a stretch of the present Mississippi Gulf Coast near Biloxi and Ocean Springs also saw settlement by France. New Orleans became established in 1718 when Louisiana, formally operated as a monopoly by Antoine Crozat, was turned over to financier John Law, whose efforts to value the economic prospects of Louisiana met initially with success. New Orleans became Louisiana's capital in 1721, though the financial success was not to last. In support of the speculation in the stock of Law's Company of the Indies led to the termination of its Louisiana enterprise the early 1730s. Arriving from France within a decade of New Orleans' founding were the Ursuline nuns, whose presence embodied both spiritual and educational components. The order established an academy that still operates today, and this picture I show you is not of the present convent, but the one that they occupied from approximately 1824 until 1912. And I, I showed you this one because it no longer exists. If you care to see the uh, 1740s building, you could just walk up this. Charter Street and, and take a peek for yourself. Also ushered in during the New Orleans' first decade being promulgated in 1724 was the Code Noir, the set of laws that regulated slavery in the French colonial world. And I show you this title page from a 1743 edition here at the historic New Orleans collection. For its last 30 years as a French colony, from 1732 to 62, Louisiana was managed by the monarchy under Louis XV. Its population centers remain principally in the lower Mississippi Valley and Gulf Coast settlements, but important posts in the interior included Natchitoches, Louisiana, Natchez, Mississippi, and St. Genevieve, Missouri. Though France ceded Louisiana to Spain in 1762, and with the Bourbon monarchs ruling each country, previous animosities were mitigated, Louisiana's disposition remained strongly French. Even the Spanish administration in Louisiana reinforced this condition by accommodating settlers expelled from Acadia or Nova Scotia by the British. Acadian settled Louisiana from 1765 through 1785, with many arriving during the administration of Spanish Governor Bernardo de Galvez, which lasted from 1777 to 1785. It is ironic that what is arguably the strongest French cultural group in the today's coastal south, and what also strongly identifies Louisiana as French to the rest of the world, took root during the Spanish colonial period. And this is 
kind of a 20th century uh, uh, acknowledgement of that. As the aftermath of the French Revolution in the late 1780s flowed into the rise of Napoleon's power, the idea of rebuilding a French empire in North America, largely terminated by the Seven Years' War or French and Indian War in 1763, gained steam in France. In order to achieve this end, France sought to reestablish control over its revolting colony of Saint-Domingue, the western half of the island of Hispaniola, and to supply and defend it from Louisiana, which it reacquired from Spain by treaty in 1800. Throughout the course of the prolonged military engagement, France underestimated the military skills of the Saint-Domingue rebels. This strategic error, combined with continuing war with Great Britain and the decimating effects on tropical disease of French soldiers and sailors, ended with the French defeat and the creation of the new nation, Haiti, on January 1, 1804. For the United States, a critical result of the French misfortune in Saint-Domingue was being able to purchase the no longer needed colony of Louisiana. The failed aspirations of a rebuilt empire in North America did not end France's influence in the coastal south. Indeed, one might argue that at least in Louisiana, the outcome initially increased French presence. Over the course of a decade or more, many fleeing the ongoing strife in Saint-Domingue ultimately found their way to New Orleans, with the greatest majority of these whites, free people of color, and slaves, after sojourning in Cuba, arriving in the Crescent City between 1808 and 1810. This infusion nearly doubled the city's population and interrupted a trajectory of Americanization begun in 1803 with the Louisiana Purchase. Nearly 10,000 people, new arrivals with strong French and French colonial heritage, as well as with Spanish and African backgrounds and experience, reasserted a French character in New Orleans and its environs. Another group of French whose collective influence in the coastal south is perhaps more sensational than lasting consisted of Napoleonic supporters who chose exile from France or were forced into it during the restoration of Louis XVIII following the emperor's exile, first on Elba and later on Saint-Hélène. In 1816, such a group acquired land from the United States in northern Alabama with the prospect of establishing an agricultural colony, the so-called vine and olive colony, named for the expected enterprises that it would operate in a new city named Demopolis. A variety of misfortunes befell its early days, and in 1818, another settlement, ostensibly for peaceful agricultural purposes, was begun in Texas, with some participation of the Demopolis homesteaders. This colony on the Trinity River was the project of François-Antoine Charles Lallemand, a trusted commander in Napoleon's service. The short, less than nine-month history of the settlement called Champ d'Asile, or Asylum Field, is often difficult to fathom, though among its possible motives were a home for displaced Frenchmen, or a cover operation to rescue Napoleon, or perhaps to install his brother Joseph as a monarch in Mexico or some South American country. Orbiting around the people and purposes of Champ d'Asile was a sphere of intrigue involving, at least marginally, the brothers Jean and Pierre Lafitte, and a host of others with fluid national alliances. Chantasil, situated in the borderlands out of direct contact with either Spanish or Mexican authorities and with a hands-off policy from the United States, was vacated just prior to its destruction by a Mexican force sent from San Antonio. The colonists dispersed, with some coming to Louisiana. The residue of this Napoleonic loyalty remains in place names such as Napoleonville, Louisiana, and Marengo County, Alabama, street names in New Orleans established by surveyor Benjamin Buisson, a former artillery officer with Napoleon, celebrate victories at Constantinople, Milan, and Vienna. The Austerlitz Plantation Home in New Roads, Louisiana, is said to be named for another of the Little Corporal's military successes. Another French figure whose name lives on made his mark before Napoleon's rise to power. The many parishes, counties, towns, and settlements and hamlets called Lafayette, Fayette, and Lagrange honor the French military hero of the American Revolution, Marie Joseph Paul Yves Guibert de Moutier, Marquis de Lafayette. In 1824 and 25, the aging Lafayette, who was then 67, toured the American Republic at the invitation of President James Monroe, ultimately visiting every state in the Union. 
Thomas Jefferson had considered him as governor for Louisiana following the purchase from France. Lafayette had been granted a tract of land near the city and was thunderously welcomed in New Orleans in the spring of 1825. Having arrived by the relatively new technology of steamboat travel, Lafayette spent five days in the city, fetid constantly and jealously harbored by his hosts. Thousands greeted the Marquis with great fanfare upon arrival and departure, and a tem temporary monumental arch was built in his honor, precipitating the revision of one of the city's important maps. Uh, this plan of the city by Jacques Tenesse was a revision of his earlier plan of 1817, and the detail shows the arch that was constructed uh, for Lafayette's visit. As the early decades of the 19th century progressed, a sizable population with French roots descended from colonial families became augmented with the foreign French, those arriving in the United States directly from France. In Louisiana, this group mostly shunned the planter lifestyle of their French Creole neighbors, aligning themselves, at least philosophically, with the Americans who welcomed business and commercial opportunities and engaged in them avidly. In the visual arts, French fingerprints from this group are all over the region. Early in, early in the 19th century, miniaturists brought their skills that earned them both clients and reputations. In later decades, portrait painters, using their academic French training, found a receptive audience for their works. In the realm of art and service to scientific investigation, Charles Alexandre Lesueur has few equals. The native of Le Havre came to the United States in the first decade of the 19th century, aligning himself initially with the intellectual community in Philadelphia and later accompanying the so called boatload of knowledge of those establishing the utopian colony at New Harmony. Indiana, headed by Robert McClure. From that base, where he lived from 1825 to 1837, Lassure traveled the lower Ohio and Mississippi valleys, visiting New Orleans in the 1830s. Dubbed the Raphael of zoological painters, his sketches relating to the shells, fossils, minerals, along with his painstaking, painstaking watercolors of fish, turtles, and other animals of the region, are extraordinarily descriptive and are principally housed in the Museum d'Histoire Naturelle in Le Havre. Other drawings show life in the places that he traveled, including a number that depict Native American communities and his journeys on the Mississippi River. In the United States, the Ewell Sales Stewart Library at the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia has a number of Lesseur's illustrated works, as does the library at Purdue University in Indiana. We owe the technical basis of this presentation, a form of photography, to a Frenchman, both in the larger sense through Louis-Jacques de Daguerre's perfection of the photographic process, as well as a specific regional sense. French-born Jules Lyon introduced Daguerre's miracle to New Orleans in March 1840, six months after the inventor himself had announced his discovery to the French Academy of Sciences. Lyon's physical legacy is the specific body of images he left, though principally as a lithographer, as important in being the spark that ignited photography in Louisiana. Lyon and his successors put the real prospect of a visual history within the grasp of nearly anyone. This is something taken for granted today, but was a massive social watershed in the mid-19th century. Building and design traditions, both grand and modest, reflect French influence occasionally in an unmodulated form and often through the process of creolization. Gardens such as those recreated today at Chandert in Baton Rouge recall a French influence, and the unique watercolors found in New Orleans notarial archives offer additional examples. The current appearance, dating from the late 1840s, of what is among New Orleans' most recognizable buildings, the St. Louis Cathedral, derives from the plans of Jacques-Nicolas Boussier de Puyi, whose architectural training was French. De Puyi uh, created the facade that we currently recognize as the face of the cathedral today. Marie-Adrienne Persac, another multi-talented Frenchman, provided us with excruciatingly exact renderings of important buildings in the lower Mississippi Valley, exemplified by this gouache drawing and painting of the French Opera House in New Orleans. 
As we approach the bicentennial of Louisiana's statehood next year, we should be reminded that the convention drafting the first constitution was conducted in French, and that revisions of that document continued to be promulgated in French until 1921. Though we'll probably never hear vous all as an article of speech in southern Louisiana and throughout the coastal south, even in modern times, one does not have to scratch very hard to expose the imprint of a French legacy and a connect connection with that historical past. The history of the narrative is not one of a single narrative, but of many narratives that can be told within a single time frame. In the course of this presentation, the narrative of France is dominated but the equally compelling histories of England and Spain, Native American nations, Africans in slavery, and immigrants from Ireland, Germany, and throughout the world are themes as well. We will have to leave those examinations to other programs and other speakers. Thank you so much.